Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Dementia Researcher podcast and to our sideshow, Food for Thought, where we talk about the best evidence-based diet and lifestyle changes you can action today to reduce your risk of developing dementia. My name is Dr. Sam Moxon. I'm a regular blogger here at Dementia Researcher. And Helena Popovich, welcome to the Dementia Researcher podcast. How are you today? Very well indeed, Sam. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, good. It's good to have, have you on here. So obviously, this is a, we call this the Food for Thought series, where we talk about the impact and the, the power you can have to, I think, shape your future health based on the things that you put in your body. And so the first question I actually like to ask ourselves, and I might throw you a little bit off here because I didn't actually supply this one beforehand, but it's quite a simple one. It sort mm. of helps gauge the, the, the room is, is what did you have for breakfast today? I have poached eggs at home and I've learned how to make them without the bits of cheap paper, avocado, stir fried mushrooms, spinach and zucchini. Lots of veggies, lots of veggies. I think I had a a very similar breakfast to it, except instead of eggs, it was it was sort of scrambled tofu, but with with broccoli, mushrooms, onions, kale, that kind of stuff. Get veggies on the plate early on in the day. Yeah. I love stir fried tofu as well, and and for me, I've just got to add some coconut milk because that just take or coconut cream even, it just adds that kick and it's beautiful. Yeah, I love oh, yeah, scrambled definitely. tofu. So. For the people that don't know you, then I think the best thing we can start with is by having you introduce yourself, provide a brief overview of your expertise, especially in the field of nutrition and dementia and what the kind of things that you're interested in, please. Okay. Well, I'm an Australian medical doctor and I focus primarily on weight management, type 2 diabetes and dementia, especially Alzheimer's. And the three conditions are very much interrelated because midlife visceral obesity and type 2 diabetes both independently double the risk of developing Alzheimer's. And we also know that brain changes leading to Alzheimer's can start 20, 30 years before the onset of symptoms. But here's the thing that's going to worry people the most. I learned nothing about nutrition in my medical training apart from one lecture on vitamins and minerals. And unfortunately, that's because doctors are only taught to use drugs, radiation or surgery as methods of treating diseases. I was really disappointed that I was not taught about the impact of lifestyle choices, you know, other than cigarettes and alcohol. And so most doctors, not all, but a large majority of doctors actually know less about nutrition than the average health conscious member of the public. And I think it's important for people to know that because if your doctor doesn't talk about food as medicine, you walk away believing that it isn't important. Um, so back to your question about my expertise, I think the benefit of being a doctor is, is that at least it gave me the training to understand statistics and research papers, to interpret data and to recognise whether a study has validity. And why I've done such a deep dive into all things nutrition and lifestyle is, well, firstly, I was a fitness instructor for 20 years, and that taught me about the importance of food for optimal physical performance. Then my mother, who had never smoked, died of lung cancer. Then my father developed Alzheimer's, and then my partner got throat cancer. In succession, not all at the same time. And modern medicine had little to offer any of them. So basically, I had to look at other ways to help them. And what I kept finding in the medical research was the pivotal role that nutrition and exercise, sleep, stress, even our belief system played in keeping us healthy or making us sick. I think it's, it's fascinating. And some of the points you touched on there, especially about not being taught nutrition in medicine, we had a guest on recently, Michael Greger, who's published a book you may be aware of. It's called How Not to Die. And mm -hmm. he chose his medical school based on the one that offered the most 
content in terms of nutrition wow. and it was still a very very small amount now yeah. what i think is going to be interesting today is i think we both have similar interests which is looking at the role of diet on not just uh, brain health but overall health as well yes and we have on this show so far we've mainly focused on people who specialize in, in vegan diets and i think what's going to be interesting is hearing about a different type of diet today which which you talk a lot about the keto diet mm -hmm. and i think in some ways the similarities between the keto diet and a whole food vegan diet focusing on fresh foods and that kind of stuff but in other ways there's different principles as well so for me it's going to be really interesting to hear the the sort of different perspectives on that yeah but they're not mutually exclusive you can no, be no. vegan you can be vegan and keto yeah just takes yeah. a bit more work. Well, then let's let's um, let's start with the the first, I think, m most important question for this. Then, what led you to explore the impact of that particular diet on specifically dementia risk? Well, I actually reluctantly came to keto through my my partner's cancer, not dementia. That's where I started. Unfortunately, I didn't know about the keto diet um, when Dad had Alzheimer's, and I was perfectly happy eating a low fat, plant based diet. But when my partner was diagnosed with inoperable throat cancer and he had none of the known risk factors, so no smoking, no heavy drinking, um, I then discovered the work of Dr. Thomas Seyfried. Now, he's a professor of biology, genetics and biochemistry, I think it is, at, the, at Boston College. And he, his research shows that a distinguishing feature of cancer cells is that they have lost their ability to produce energy using oxygen. So that means they rely on fermentation. And what that means is cancer cells have to rely almost exclusively on glucose and an amino acid called glutamine, but to a much lesser extent. They can only use glucose for energy. And so severely reducing a carbohydrate intake can effectively starve cancer cells. And then conversely, you need to keep feeding your non-cancer cells as well as you possibly can. And fatty acids and ketones are the best way to do that. So that meant okay. I had to learn about the ketogenic diet. And because this was a life and death situation, like my partner didn't have a better alternative. We just had to do it and we had to do it well. So I became a keto connoisseur pretty much in a matter of weeks. <laughs> and then because I also had an interest in dementia, I looked at other applications of the keto diet. I mean, the good news is, yeah. um, for the record, my partner has been given the all clear. Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, he, yeah, he did have chemo and radiotherapy, but there is no doubt on my mind that the ketogenic diet facilitated the effectiveness of his treatments because it starved his cancer cells so they were more easy to knock off. But then I, I went deeper into the keto diet and the more I looked at it, the more applications I found, especially in curing with a capital C, not merely controlling but permanently reversing type 2 diabetes, I can get a type yeah. 2 diabetic off their insulin in two days if they go on a ketogenic diet. Um, it's a cure for um, recalcitrant epilepsy, especially in children, drug-resistant epilepsy, and that's not debated. It lowers blood pressure. It treats fatty liver disease. I mean, cures fatty liver disease. It can even massively um, improve, if not cure, depression and other psychiatric conditions, migraines, arthritic conditions, and of course, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I think what you said there as well, that really resonates with me because I think, without getting too political, I feel like we've been conditioned into thinking that this idea that what we eat can have such a profound influence on our health and on diseases, it's almost still seen by many as pseudoscience, but there's so much evidence you know, out there that it's not. I mean, and type 2 diabetes 
is a perfect example of how much yeah. power you can have over your health with the things you put in your body. Absolutely. And I don't actually view the ketogenic diet as a diet. It's actually a metabolic therapy. But, you know, okay. I call it the ketogenic diet because that's the popular vernacular, but it, it creates such profound biochemical changes in the body. It's almost like taking a pharmaceutical agent. And I think we need to remember that the, the whole body is a system. And so something that goes in your gut doesn't just stay in your gut and, and have an effect yeah. there. It will affect the microbiome. It will affect things that go into the bloodstream, which circulate around and then have a knock-on effect on other organs. And it's interesting you talk about how it wasn't initially rooted in dementia. It was the same for me with, with the vegan diet. For me, it was about inflammatory bowel disease. And then I noticed that I was feeling more sharp and more aware. And that mm. led me on a path into looking at exactly what the foods I eat were having an impact on in different parts of my body. Um, yep. And it's just fascinating to, to know that I think it's quite empowering to think that we can have more of an influence on our health. It's not just genes being destiny. There's situations where, I mean, for me, what I noticed was a similar thing. My medicine that I was taking for inflammatory bowel, bowel disease was about 30 or 40% effective. And then when mm -hmm. I changed my diet, I went into full remission and have been for 18 months now. So there is, I think, a complementary role that a good diet can play on, on, on conventional yeah. medicine as well. Well, food is not just calories and, and energy. Food is information. You will have heard of um, the study of nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics. Yeah. So food actually interacts with our genes just as much as different genes make us, you know, respond to different foods differently. Yeah, there's, um, there's a physician called Michael Clapper, I think in a TED Talk, talks about it. He, said, he described it as the food playing your genes like a piano. Which I thought oh, was, I like yeah. that. That's nice. That's yeah, nice, isn't it? Well, yeah. that, let's, get, let's get into the specifics then. So, so what does the current research say about, about the, um, the relationships? In fact, no, let's, let's take a step back first. I'd like to know more about the diet itself and what it entails. I'll jump the gun a bit because I'm very excited by the, the, yeah, sort yeah. Of the, the, the output of it. But yes, yeah, so if, I, if someone wants to follow a keto diet, what does that entail and how is it different to other dietary approaches that people might be aware of? Well, firstly, keto is short for ketones or ketone bodies. The terms are used interchangeably, but strictly speaking, um, ketone bodies are ketones produced by our liver in our body, whereas ketones could also include exogenous ketones produced in the lab. But we're talking about the ketogenic diet, so we're talking about the ketones we produce. And ketones are water-soluble molecules produced in our liver when our blood glucose, i.e. blood sugar levels, are low, and therefore our blood insulin levels are low, and so our body has to break down fat for energy because there's no glucose. And so that process of releasing fat from fat cells, carrying it to our liver and breaking it down into ketone bodies is called ketogenesis, the production of ketones. So basically a ketogenic diet is a way of eating that results in the production of measurable levels of ketones in our blood, which means greater than 0 0.5 millimolar. And the person is then described as being in a state of ketosis. And, you know, you can get brief periods of ketogenesis and ketosis through fasting because the ketogenic diet is actually a fasting mimicking strategy. The same biochemical and hormonal changes occur in our body when we're fasting as when we're eating a ketogenic diet. It's just that you can't fast indefinitely, so it's not a long-term option. Strenuous exercise can also put us into ketosis and ketogenesis for a short period of time because it uses up the body's glycogen and glucose stores. And, and this is how what a ketogenic diet is based on, 
restricting carbohydrates. That is really the basis of a ketogenic diet. So basically, it's a very low intake of carbohydrates, less than 50 grams a day, even as low as 20 grams. An adequate intake of protein and the amount of protein is individualized, you know, it depends on your age, ideal body weight, muscle mass, exercise, and enough intake of healthy fats to satiate you. And we can define healthy fats in a moment. So basically where I start with my patients is, and you know, you can start anywhere, but I've got seven principles of a healthy ketogenic diet, because just like you can have an unhealthy vegan diet, you know, eating lollies, uh, you know, you can have an unhealthy keto diet as well. But I say, number one, I start with what they can eat rather than what they can't because then you don't miss the stuff that you can't eat because you're already full on the things that you can. So number one, prioritise protein because we need more protein, not less as we age. And, and you know, I'd say at least 1.5 grams per kilogram of your ideal body weight. Then I say, so alliteration so you can remember, prioritise protein. Number two, go green. Add a variety of leafy green or cruciferous vegetables. Three, flavor with fat. Now, in nature, protein always comes with fat, whether it's your soybeans, whether it's your meat. There's no food that's pure protein. So maybe nature intended us to eat them together. So I tell people, leave the fat on your meat. This might gross you out, being a vegan. Leave the crackling on your pork, the skin on your chicken, because fat gives flavor. And here's the thing. You don't need sugary, artificial sources if you retain the natural flavor of the food, and, and fat is one way to do that. And fat is not a problem if you follow my next four principles, which are stop the three S's, stop soft drinks and all sugary beverages, stop sugar and stop starches. And uh, the next one is curb your carbs. And curb your carbs really means eliminating not just refined starches, but also even what's traditionally healthy. Because remember, this is a therapeutic intervention. It's not simply a diet. So that's why even you need to eliminate, for a ketogenic diet, to be in ketosis, you even need to eliminate grains, legumes, most but not fruits, most below-ground vegetables such as parsnip, potatoes and beetroot, but, but your above-ground vegetables are fine. And, like, we can unpack this in a minute, but I'm just sort of giving you the big picture. And then the last two principles, these are really, really important as well. Fast to last. Leave at least 12 hours between dinner and breakfast, preferably longer. So after your last piece of food for the, for the evening, if it's 7 p.m., do not have breakfast before 7 a.m., preferably 14 hours if you can do it, even 16. This is, this is helps you get into ketosis much quicker. And last but certainly not least, eat and cook food that is as close to its natural state and possible. In other words, ditch the junk food, fast food, convenience foods that constitute 80% of our supermarket shelves, even if they're labelled keto-friendly because very often they're not. So, so the first thing you'll notice is it's, uh, the ketogenic diet doesn't require calorie restriction. You can enjoy eating satiety. And, you know, because proteins are the most satiating macronutrient and fats are a second, people find they aren't as hungry. They don't need to eat as often. And also because you're not producing insulin, your fat cells are able to release their stored fat to be used as energy. And so a lot of people find that they effortlessly lose weight. You don't have to lose weight, but you can do it effortlessly. 
which you can't do if you've constantly got insulin on board because insulin locks your fat inside your fat cells. Um, and the last thing about the, the other distinguishing feature of a ketogenic diet is you can measure whether you're in ketosis. So you can adjust your carbon protein intake to make sure you're on track. Because if you're not in ketosis, it's not a ketogenic diet and it won't work as a metabolic therapy. And this is where sometimes you get these stupid headlines that say, um, ketogenic diet doesn't work for X, Y, and Z. And then when you read the study, they're eating 100 grams of carbs a day. That's not going to put you into ketosis, and they haven't actually tested whether they're in ketosis. A low-carb diet is not necessarily a ketogenic diet. It's a low-carb diet. And low-carb diets can definitely be helpful, but it's still not the same as being in ketosis. So, I mean, I can discuss how to measure ketones if you're interested. Blood, um, just you know, finger, uh, just a blood drop, um, breath or urine. It's pretty easy in buy commercial kits. I think that one of the points that you drove home there as well, anytime you sort of see studies on, on diets and improving health, there's always that same key principle, which is to ditch the junk, ditch the processed. Yep. And anytime you see, I get frustrated with this thing sometimes in, in news media's vegan diet labeled unhealthy and you look at what the person, or you see, you see someone on yeah. a podcast saying, I, I ate a vegan diet and I felt terrible. But then you look at, I always think, what were they eating? And it's always beyond burgers. It's always junk food. Mm. Well, of course you're going to feel terrible if you eat that. So it's all about freshness, isn't it? And it, it sounds like it's the same principle here, as fresh as possible. Very much so. So, so then what does the, the current trends in the research say about the relationship between keto diet and dementia um, progression? And if I could ask as well, you know, about the, the mechanisms behind how this could work and how it might sort of positively affect brain health. I think that's a really, really important question. Okay, firstly, and there are a lot of mechanisms. So firstly, in neurodegenerative disorders of aging, one of the characteristic features is cerebral glucose hypometabolism. Have you heard yeah. that, you know, yeah, dementia yeah. is essentially, and so, so is Parkinson's and so are most, most dementias and neurodegenerative diseases. They are a, a state of impaired glucose metabolism. The brain is starving. Um, and, and it's interesting that glucose metabolism in the brain deteriorates in a progressive region-specific disease-specific manner. Yeah. So basically the, the brain of a person with Alzheimer's is less capable of using glucose for fuel, especially in the parietal and frontal lobes, the cingulate gyrus, and the deficit can be measured. It, it's as much as 25%. That is huge. So wow. if the brain has lost a quarter of its energy, no wonder it's not working properly. And yeah. you, can, you can see using FDG PET scans, you know, radio, radioactively labeled glucose, fluorodeoxyglucose. You, it's, it's not a, you know, it's a standard test. You can see how little, you know, certain areas of the brain are able to use glucose. So it begs the next question, what factors contribute to brain glucose hypometabolism? So firstly, lots, um, and it can yeah. be different factors in different people. But, you know, firstly, you might have um, uh, damage to the blood-brain barrier and therefore delivery okay. of glucose from the blood to the brain can become compromised. You're just not getting enough glucose into the brain. You could have reduced blood flow to the brain even though the blood-brain barrier is okay, but if you've got high blood pressure, arteriosclerosis, heart failure, you know, yeah. you'll get less uh, blood to the, to the brain and you'll, you'll, you know what's good for the heart is good for the brain. Um, very importantly, brain cells can develop insulin resistance so that even if glucose can reach them, 
glucose is not able to enter the cells. Now, not okay. all brain cells require insulin for glucose. They don't. But the regions that deteriorate in Alzheimer's do tend to need insulin to allow the yeah, glucose. Yeah. So that's really interesting. So the insulin resistance is a big factor. Another really big factor is mitochondrial dysfunction. And let's talk about that in a minute because that's another big topic. But mitochondrial dysfunction also massively contributes to Alzheimer's. And also neuroinflammation. And, and that's because um, microglial consumption of glucose due to neuroinflammation is elevated. And so you've got energy siphoned away from neurons into your microglia. Basically, you know, that just leads to a, a, an ongoing negative spiral. It's fascinating because you're talking a lot about insulin there and I've heard Alzheimer's almost be called type 3 diabetes yes. because of this, this insulin. So, so what's the mechanism behind how it helps with mitochondrial dysfunction? Does it boost my, mitochondrial sort of regrowth? In, yes, in it does. A couple of things. Number one, if the brain is supplied with ketones, it can use the ketones for energy in place of glucose. And so okay. you can actually restore the functioning of those neurons. And you can, just like you've got FDG PET scans, you can do ketone PET scans. And you can see that the cells can't use glucose, but those very same cells can use ketones. Okay. So the ketones are an alternative fuel source when glucose is not available. Interesting. Okay? That's really interesting. I mean, you could even say there are actually, sometimes there are preferred preferred fuel for the brain because if the blood has has equal amounts of glucose and ketones the brain will preferentially use the ketones okay so we're not 100 percent sure why and and that's why the a keto diet has actually been termed neuro therapy or you know a brain okay. energy rescue strategy and you can look up the work of stephen cunane uh sherbrooke university in canada he's shown very, he was one of the first people to show that the brain retains its ability to use ketones even when it can't use glucose. And the higher okay. the keto concentration in blood, the more the brain will take up ketones. But the story gets even better because ketones are not just a fuel, they're also signaling molecules and they have a neuroprotective effect. So ketones, they're, they're beneficial to all neurodegenerative diseases because they modulate firstly your central and peripheral metabolism and so by improving insulin resistance by lowering blood pressure by reversing type 2 diabetes you're actually removing three big drivers of dementia for a start so that's okay. even outside the brain secondly um, ketones do improve mitochondrial function and mitochondrial dysfunction lies at the heart of all metabolic diseases you know even including depression bipolar disorder um, schizophrenia and mental disorders are also a risk factor for um, dementia. Ketones okay. also reduce inflammation. They reduce oxidative stress. Um, like fasting, they stimulate autophagy, so they're clearing up yeah. debris and toxins. Ketones even modulate the gut microbiome. And ketones increase the production of BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which you probably know stimulates the formation of new brain cells and it enhances yeah. neuroplasticity. And this is all well documented in the medical literature. You just have to, to Google, you know, ketones and neurodegenerative diseases or ketones and metabolic effects, and you will be inundated with studies. So this is not speculation. It's all been documented. 
Okay, that, that, that sort of answered my next question, which was about specific studies or, or clinical trials that, that are trying to find ways to apply this in, in, in patients with dementia. So is, is that something that's, that's underway now as well? People are actually looking Yes, there are. They, they, there are clinical trials underway. They have been. I also just want to say, I don't know if, if your listeners will be familiar, that ketogenic therapies, they're not a new idea. Like using fasting to treat epilepsy was like recorded in ancient Greek texts, you know, 500 okay. B.C., um, but it wasn't until the 1920s, like exactly 100 years ago, that doctors discovered that like fasting, a low-carb, high-fat diet could stimulate ketone body production and therefore, you know, a ketogenic diet actually became the treatment for epilepsy throughout the 1920s and 30s. Um, and it was really successful, but when anti-seizure medications came along in the 1980s, you know, a ketogenic diet was phased out because doctors were taught the drugs were easier than than a, what was perceived as a restrictive diet. However, um, if children have drug-resistant epilepsy, the ketogenic diet still remains an effective treatment. What I just find devastating is that almost no doctors offer patients dietary management of epilepsy. And I know that a lot of them, like I, I go to people, you know, would you prefer a drug or would you prefer a diet? You know, a drug with side effects yeah. or would you prefer to try changing your diet? 90% of them... Okay, some people go, I can't be bothered with the diet, just give me the drug. But the yeah. vast majority go, well, hell, I'll try the diet. And especially yeah. with children, it's not as hard as, as people think. It's just a matter of getting into a routine. So um, I want to quote Hippocrates because I think this is really important. You know, he said that healing arose from the art of true living and the art of fine medicine combined. And yeah. unfortunately, medical schools have forgotten to convey half of the equation, you know, the art of true true living. But that, that's yeah. my rant. But anyway, um, I recommend people look up um, the Charlie Foundation for ketogenic therapies. I think it's just charliefoundation.org. And that was because in 1993, an 11th, 11, he was 11 months old, Charlie, um, he developed intractable epilepsy, multiple daily seizures. He had medications. He had surgery. Nothing helped. And his parents finally learned about the ketogenic diet. And within a month, he was seizure-free. Wow. He was medication-free. He, rem- he had to be on the diet for five years, but he's now like an adult and he can eat whatever he likes and he hasn't had another seizure. And then That's his amazing. parents founded the, the Charlie Foundation to offer hope to other families with children whose epilepsy wasn't treated by drugs. But anyway, then, you know, so we've got to fast forward. Um, Probably the best uh, Alzheimer's and ketogenic diet treatment was, uh, study was done by Dr. Matthew Phillips. He's a New Zealand neurologist. He calls himself the metabolic neurologist. So just go to metabolicneurologist.com. And he did, it was 2020, um, he found that a 12-week was yeah 12 week study it was a crossover trial so they did i can't remember the exact time but but you know they did you know a low fat diet compared to a ketogenic diet and he's actually got the whole ketogenic diet on his website just you, anyone can download it and do the actual diet for themselves and okay. he found that it substantially improved daily functioning and quality of life over and above you know the the low fat diet and there's also, like, I won't go into all the trials, but look up Dr. Dale Bredesen, Dr. Christopher Palmer, uh, Dr. Brett Sher, metabolicmind.org. There's dozens and dozens of trials underway 
and, and I mentioned earlier uh, Stephen Cunane, they're doing a lot of uh, trials. And some, because Alzheimer's is difficult in terms of compliance and, you know, it's, it, it is difficult with an older person to change what they're doing. A lot of trials are looking at supplying people with MCT oil instead. Now, can I just rewind a bit? Because uh, I think yeah. this is an important story. Um, in 2004, uh, Dr. Mary Newport, she was a neonatologist. Her husband was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's. He was 54. And, you know, within two years, he couldn't drive, he couldn't use a computer, he was an accountant, yeah. he couldn't do anything. In 2008, she wanted to enrol her husband in clinical trials of emerging Alzheimer's drugs. And she came across one that demonstrated positive effects of taking medium chain triglyceride oil. So she thought she okay. was a neonatologist. So she, she knew that MCT oil constitutes, you know, 50 to 60% of the fat in coconut oil. So she went out and bought coconut oil and just started giving her husband tablespoons, you know, two tablespoons with every yeah. meal about. And the previous day, without the MCT oil, he'd scored 14 out of 30 in the mini, mini mental state exam and failed to qualify for the trial. You know, a few days later, he was scoring 18 out of 30. Now, okay. you know, that could have been coincidence. So she just kept giving, giving him coconut oil. And she's written a whole book about this. It dramatically improved his functioning to the point where he could resume some kind of, you know, volunteer work. And and now, you know, she sort of started it off. Um, there have been various studies called, you know, Brain Energy Rescue, with the one with by Stephen Cunane. You can look it up. Brain Energy Rescue with Ketones Improves Cognitive Outcomes in MCI. And the reason MCT, and you can just buy MCT oil. It's not expensive, yeah. over the counter. I love the taste of it because I love coconut, the taste of coconut. It yeah, tastes like so I will drizzle it into that tofu scramble into um, uh, scrambled eggs, drizzle it over vegetables because I love the mushrooms. It works really well with – I love the flavour. But, you know, you can add it to anything you like. You can't yeah. – don't cook with it. You don't want to heat it. But you can use – and I wouldn't go above, say, two tablespoons a day because it can give people a stomach upset if they go too hard too soon. Okay. Start with one or two teaspoons. But why they work is MCTs, medium-chain triglycerides, are composed of saturated fatty acids – which are different to the ones in, in meat. They're really rapidly absorbed and transported to the liver where they're converted into ketone bodies, the very same okay. ketone bodies produced on a ketogenic diet. So particularly with Alzheimer's and dementia, MCTs could be a way of inducing ketogenesis and providing the brain with usable fuel without following a strict ketogenic diet. Having said that, it's just that you, you won't have consistent levels of ketones because, you know, you'll have the MCT oil, yeah. your ketones will rise and they'll drop, and you're also not going to get all the benefits of restricting carbs and correcting okay. insulin resistance. But it's certainly – I recommend everyone try some MCT oil that has Alzheimer's because you've got nothing to lose. The Stephen Cunane study, he found that it, they, they looked at five cognitive domains. They all improved. You know, this is MCI though, you know, so they hadn't yet developed Alzheimer's, but, you know, episodic yeah. memory, there was executive function, language, processing, speed, attention, they all improved. Yeah, that's, you see a lot of interesting studies around MCI because that's the, probably the best therapeutic window for something like that. Yes, um, exactly. So I'd like to ask now, so we've had all previous guests have been sort of purveyors of a plant-based diet. 
And there's also a lot of studies out there that, that highlight benefits of plant-based diets for brain health. So I'd like to get your thoughts on how the two compare. Is it the fact that in both you, the principle is fresh foods and to eliminate a lot of the processed stuff? Because you know there's, yes. there are some there are some similarities, but also for a plant-based diet, you are eating more fruits and more beans and pulses as well. So there's differences to be, to be discussed as well. So how do the two compare? Do you think, and is how much of it is making your diet as fresh as possible having a benefit and how much of it is specific food sources as well okay if you eat whole unprocessed foods vegetables fruits legumes mish, meat fish poultry so, so it doesn't you can be vegan fine yeah if as long as you're not eating processed foods you will dramatically reduce your risk of all diseases yeah and so that's if all your if you're Starting at a good place, you know, if you're still young and healthy when you start a whole food diet, it really doesn't matter whether you're, in my opinion, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, omnivore or carnivore, as long as you get rid of all the toxins in our processed food, and by that I mean added sugar, vegetable oils, emulsifiers, yep. artificial colorings, flavorings, preservatives, and any chemical designated by a number, that is what is toxic. Yep. It's not... You know, it's not the piece of meat. It's not the the sweet potato. It's not the beet. All those real foods are. This is my. This is my over. If you're healthy, this is what I recommend. You can eat anything as long as it's from the land, from the sea, from the sky, or from a tree. Not from a packet. Yeah. Not from a tin. If it comes in a box, I throw it in the bin. That is that is <laughs> my that. sort of tongue in cheek recommendation. Okay. So, you know, plant based diets are fine. As long as you don't already have some kind of cognitive deficit. Okay. So it's like this you know, you eat a healthy diet, you are much less likely to get, to succumb to infections. However, you could still get pneumonia. You know, you can't avoid everything. You might still yeah. get an infectious disease, in which case the healthy diet isn't going to cure you, the antibiotic is. So yeah. I see the keto, keto diet as like the antibiotic. You know, you've now got an illness, a healthy diet on its own, good sleep, stress management, exercise will all help, but unfortunately will not be enough to reverse a starving brain. You actually need a drug, you know, some kind of pharmacological therapy. And guess what? A ketogenic diet is like a pharmacological therapy. So that's where I see okay. the difference. The, the healthy plant-based diet is prevention. So it's the ketogenic diet if you want to start it ahead of time. The ketogenic diet is, is in a league of its own because it has the biochemical effect. Like a vegan diet without the keto does not provide the brain, the starving brain with ketones. The, it does not cure mito, mitochondrial dysfunction. Do you see what I'm saying? It okay, yeah, I see what you're saying, yeah, yeah. And like you said, you know, before we start recording, it's possible to combine the two. You can do vegan and yeah. keto. Absolutely. So, you know, you just eat lots of nuts, avocado, olive yeah. oil, tofu, you know, you can yeah. do it. Some some of the most delicious foods, actually. I love nuts and tofu and avocado. So Absolutely. So, and, and look, uh, just to say, you know, ketones are a medicine. And the only reason people aren't getting more excited about them is because there's no money to be made by people changing yeah. the way they eat. The same way there's no, there's no, there's no, there's big farm, there's no big broccoli. Like, yeah, so. I love that too. That's excellent. Now, some people um, who are into this space will say there are ketone salts and esters on the market. Yes, okay. there, they, there are. They're not as effective as being in ketosis. 
Um, I worry about the salts because you have to have a lot of them and the ketone salts can overload you with sodium, potassium, calcium. Um, and the esters are very expensive. And I haven't tried them, but people say they taste dreadful anyway. So, okay, yeah. yes, there are ketone. This is exogenous ketones on the market. I don't recommend them yet, yet, only because they haven't been studied and only because I don't want to overload you with salts. Okay, yeah, I think that's fair enough. So I think there's one, I wouldn't say it's an elephant in the room, but there's one question that you probably get asked a lot, which is, a ketogenic diet is also associated with high amounts of saturated fat, especially if you're eating lots of meat, which we're told is a, is a risk factor for heart disease and dementia. So yeah. my question is, how does this aspect of the diet impact the benefits for dementia? And how can you address these concerns? Is it a case of the right fat or the right things with the fat because you're removing all the processed stuff? Like, How do you pick apart that argument against it with the saturated fat intake? Yes, it's a very much a case of the right fats. And saturated fat is only a problem in the context of a high carbohydrate diet okay, okay? so and, and i'll tell you why in a minute um like saturated fats you'll know predominantly found in coconut oil butter meat cheese full cream yeah. dairy products um and they're described as saturated i think people need to know the biochemistry to understand why they're not harmful they're described as saturated because they have no double bonds okay, okay. so that all their bonds are saturated they and that means they're the most chemically stable of all our dietary fats. They do not oxidize as readily as your monounsaturated fats, but and particularly your polyunsaturated fatty acids. Now, monos and, and polys are healthy in, in the right amounts, um, okay. but saturated fats are the most stable. They melt at a high temperature compared to yeah. monos and polys. So they tend to be solid at room temperature and importantly, they don't react with oxygen because they have no free bonds to grab onto the okay. oxygen atoms. And they have a lot of really important roles in our body. You know, they, they don't just provide us with energy, they're important components of cell membranes okay. and they regulate all the traffic going into and out of our cells. So they affect our cellular functions and they do not clog our arteries. The problem is sugar, not fat, you know. Okay. Okay, why are so you going to say, okay, so why have we been told that saturated fats cause heart disease? Yeah, yeah. Doctors made a big fat mistake. Okay. It began with a flawed 1950s, I think it was, hypothesis by a very charismatic epidemiologist called Ansel Keys. He postulated after, I think, um, President Eisenhower had a heart attack that saturated fats cause heart disease. And this hypothesis then engendered a series of very poorly designed studies, biased interpretations, and food companies actually bribing scientists to blame saturated fat for our health problems. And you'd say, like, why would the food industry do this? To ramp up sales of their vegetable oil and sugar-laden products. Okay, and as yeah. I said, you know, the only time that saturated fats are harmful is when they're combined with unhealthy additives to create processed foods. And in the last decade, rigorous worldwide research, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of patients and people has exonerated saturated fats from causing heart disease. Like okay. there was um, there was a study in 2010 that looked, it was more than 300,000 people. It was 11 American and European studies and they showed that if you replace saturated fats with carbohydrates, you actually increase rather than decrease heart disease. Okay. Um, there, was, there was a British review of more than 70 studies, more, I think 
more than 600,000 participants, there was no association between saturated fat consumption and heart disease. Here's the thing. The reason that vegan diets and vegetarian diets and low saturated fat diets appear healthier is because a lot of it is healthy user bias. If you're vegan or vegetarian, you don't just bumble your way into that. It means you have thought about what you eat. You don't – do you know what I mean? People who just didn't care what they were likely to eat, the hamburgers, not exercise – Eat more saturated fat because they were told not to and they was like, I don't care. So yeah. if you were health conscious, you made a conscious effort to not just lower saturated fat but to eat other healthy foods, to exercise. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Most vegans that I know are more likely to exercise, more likely to meditate, more likely to be health conscious, more mm. likely to do, more likely to have a higher socioeconomic status, all of which improve their health just as much as their diet does. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so... so multifactorial. Multifactorial. So I think the real damage in our diet is, is the, the added sugar because, you know, table sugar is fructose and glucose. Fructose actually, when, you, when it enters brain cells, it actually drops brain cells energy and it is one of the key things that causes mitochondrial dysfunction. It yeah. causes insulin resistance. And... The glucose and to eating too much. So fructose is the real toxic agent because it actually impairs communication between brain cells. So I say every soft drink is a bullet to our brain. If you did nothing, just just gave up soft drinks and all sugary beverages, including fruit juices, because you're removing yeah. the water and the sorry, you're removing the fiber. The fiber so you're getting yeah. a big dose of sugar to your liver, to your brain. So fructose actually lowers brain cell energy and damages your mitochondria. And excessive glucose can be, it causes insulin resistance as well, but it can also be converted to fructose. And so excess glucose can have the same effects as excess fructose. And and by excess, you know, nobody gets type 2 diabetes by just eating a plant-based whole food diet. They get diabetes by eating all the added sugary products and refined bread and refined starches, you know, in supermarket shops. So in the context of removing those things, a saturated fat, saturated fats are not harmful. It's interesting as well because that was a big cause of the obesity crisis in America is low-fat products where they remove the fat and replace it with sugar. That's right. And so people are getting too much sugar. So I think... See, I, I could speak to you about this for hours, but I think yes. we, I, they've got two final questions that I'd like to ask you just sure. to help really round this off for the listeners. So should this be personalized person to person? You know, what's your advice for somebody who's interested in adopting this kind of diet? Where should they start and, and how can they make that transition? Definitely personalized. It depends. Like if a person comes to me, it's going to depend on their goals, um, their medical condition, and also, the ketogenic diet isn't hard biologically. People actually, when they get it, it's not as hard as people think. What's yeah. hard about it is that we live in a carb-centric, fat-phobic world. And it takes a yeah. long time for attitudes and practices to change. And the difficulty of a ketogenic diet is the horror that their, their other doctors and friends are going, oh, that diet's going to kill you. You know, that diet's going to clog your arteries. Didn't you hear? That's a really dangerous diet. It's not. Yeah. So it's really social and cultural that makes the diet difficult. It's not the diet itself. 
Um, And so so basically I start with the person's – I actually start with the person's values and cultural beliefs. So I unpack their beliefs first. And I start with the low-hanging fruit. I really do start with the uh, the processed food first. And I say, you know, let's let's get rid of the soft drinks. Let's get rid of – you know, can you lower your alcohol? Because we know that the, the healthiest level of alcohol consumption is zero. So yeah. we, we work through the processed foods first. So number one, the added sugars. Number two, the vegetable oils. So that means vegetables are not vegetable oils, you yeah. may realise. They're seed oils um, yeah. that have been highly, highly processed. And you probably had podcasts on that, so I won't elaborate. But, you know, get rid of the sunflower oil, safflower oil, corn oil, soybean oil, rice bran oil, canola oil, cord oil, get rid of those oils as well. Start to do home-based cooking. And probably the easiest place to start is I actually tell them to, to leave that overnight fast. Start with an overnight fast. How long can you leave before between dinner and breakfast? Because if you can leave that to 12, 14, 16 hours, that already sort of kickstarts you into ketosis. So yeah. number, one, number one, overnight fast as long as you possibly can. Number two, can you exercise on an empty stomach? Because that will further push you into ketosis. This is how I start my day. I'll do the fast, usually, well, you know, 14. Well, I wake up, I'll exercise, and then I'll have breakfast. So by that stage, it's usually 14, 15 hours, sometimes 16 between dinner and, and my first meal of the day. Avoid snacking because you don't want to be continually spiking your insulin levels. And if you do eat enough protein and fat, you don't get hungry in between. So... To reiterate, start with the fast, add some exercise, add some strength training because the more muscle mass we lose, the more insulin resistant we become. And people underestimate, you know, strong muscles equate to a strong mind. Hand grip strength actually reflects mental strength. You know, you, you can test a person's hand grip strength and the better, the stronger they are, the better their cognition and the better they perform in memory tests. So... Okay. Do some strength training as well. So we haven't even got into the um, the diet yet because those three things all help to get you into ketosis without even changing your diet yet. Then yeah. we start to, okay, what proteins do you enjoy eating? Prioritize your meal around them. I just sort of say start yeah. with a palm of protein. What fats do you enjoy? Leave the fat on your meat, you know, add, add you know, um, you know, drizzle olive oil. You can use olive oil. You can use coconut oil. You can use um, certainly your linseed oil, flaxseed oil on your salads. Um, yeah. And then we talk about right. Now let's get a, get rid of, start with the, the refined starches and then even, it depends on their condition. If they have got dementia, if they've got type 2 diabetes, if they've got fatty liver disease, they need to be in ketosis. But if yeah. they're pre-diabetic, if they're just not on top of their game, then they might just get away with cutting out the unprocessed food and just going a bit lower carb. So it does depend. And I think for the final question, I could ask something really scientific and something really enlightening, but I'd actually like to finish on a more personal note, which is what's your favorite ketogenic meal? If you had to pick one, what would you cook? It's actually what I had for dinner tonight. Um, I love really good, you know, wild caught salmon or where in my part of the world, New Zealand salmon um, is really good. So it's just beautiful fish. Um, just grilled or baked in the oven, and then I'll have it with a whole heap of green vegetables. You know, I love it with spinach or kale, broccoli, broccolini, um, any you know, cooked anyway. You know, I like them in. I've got this this thing called a George Foreman. It's like um, it's like a sandwich toaster. I just love my my eggplant, my, my zucchini, and my broccolini in that. 
that's actually what I had for dinner tonight, and that is my favourite ketogenic meal. My favourite meal anyway. Yeah, yeah, that sounds delicious. Well, thank you for joining us. I think it's been really a, a, an enlightening discussion. I think our listeners will find it fascinating. So thank you very much for joining us. My and, absolute, uh, my absolute maybe, pleasure. Maybe we should follow this up in the future and see how things are going. Yes, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for the invitation. Forgot to mention, um, I have written a book called, I've written several books, but the one of interest to, to this podcast, Can Adventure Prevent Dementia? A Guide to Outwitting Alzheimer's. It goes through everything we've talked about, but it goes way beyond diet. You know, it's not just diet and it works people through, you know, just starting to lower their sugar, starting to yeah. reduce their starches, starting to um, introduce healthy fats, but it goes through all the different forms of exercise, how to get someone with Alzheimer's to exercise. It goes through sleep, obstructive sleep apnea, you know, the importance of getting your hearing checked, dental hygiene. It goes through, you know, even your beliefs and the stigmas and, and you know, all the things that we say to ourselves that talk ourselves yeah. into getting old. So Can Adventure Prevent Dementia? It's available on my website, which is drhelenapopovic.com or on Amazon. Um, so if you really want more of this and really want to help someone with dementia or prevent dementia, my book has the answers. We'll, we'll put links to that in, in the show notes yes, well, so, the, so the listeners can access that. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you all for listening and we'll see Pleasure. you next time. Thank you. The Dementia Researcher podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. Dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk